Let's take a moment to pray before we read scripture. Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Give us grace as we come to receive your word today. Prepare our hearts and minds and open our eyes to see and our ears to hear what you are saying to us today, that we might know you more. In Jesus' name, amen. The first reading is from the Old Testament, from the book of Isaiah, chapter 61, verses 1 to 11. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks, foreigners will work your fields and vineyards, and you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the young plant come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. The next reading is from the New Testament, the book of Matthew, chapter five, verses one to 12. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Well, um, it's great to be with you, and uh, I want to start this sermon off with a meme, because I want to be down with the young people. Um, this is a very old meme, so I was not down with the young people. I don't know if anyone's ever seen this. It's from an American television show, but it's become this very popular meme, meme online. You maybe can't see it. It's this really ridiculous show called Arrested Development. People are always doing crazy, just off-the-wall things. And there's this couple that is considering being in an open relationship. They've been married for a number of years, and they say, let's try being in an open relationship. And one of them is actually a counselor. And so the wife asks, okay, well, well did it work for all those other people? And he responds, no, it never does. I mean, these people somehow delude themselves into thinking it might, but, but it might work for us. And I feel like this is kind of how we live our lives, isn't it? I mean, I, I remember very clearly when before Becky and I had children, we had all these long talks. Because if I have a day off, what I like to do, I am kind of a city person. I like to go, I know this is, this. half of you will totally identify with it, half of you will not at all. But I would love to like go to Edinburgh, go to a cafe, hang out in the cafe, go to a bookshop, you know, go to a long lunch, just sort of feel like I'm a philosopher, you know, chatting. And so I thought this is, we, Becky and I said so many times, we're like, we are not going to let having children stop this. We're, why are you laughing? This is rude. You're laughing in my face. I was like, we're not going to be like those people that just stay home all the time. And Becky reminded me recently that like one year into children, she was like, you know, we have some time off next week. Do you want to go somewhere? Do you want to go to Dundee? And I just said, I'd never want to leave our house again. I hate cities. I hate people. I just want to stay home. And we all do this, don't we? How many, how many times when people are having kids do they say very proudly, well, my kids will not have screen time. They will have no screens. How many times do uni students say, you know, I'm not going to be like those boring old people. When I'm 30, I'm still going to go out. I'm still going to do fun things. I'm still going to stay out late. And you cut to 10 years later and a wild evening is a box of chocolate and Netflix. We all do it, don't we? And I think what we're talking about this morning, to put it really, really simply, is doing the right thing. Being good following a moral code. And I think we kind of do the same thing here. We, we know that the way to help ourselves be good or be moral or do the right thing isn't for someone to scold us, isn't for someone to berate us, isn't for someone to just tell us over and over again, this is what you should do, why aren't you doing it? This is what you should do, why aren't you doing it? But oftentimes that's what we think other people need. Oftentimes, if you're like me as a parent, you find yourself not explaining to your child, this is why I want you to live this way, but just saying, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. I can tell you the number of times as a minister, people have come to me and said, do, do you know what that person is doing? Do you know how they're messing up their life? Just go tell them it's wrong. Just go stop them. Just, just don't do it. We know that for us, just being scolded or berated or yelled at doesn't work. But for some reason, we keep doing it to one another. This text is, I think, pretty marvelous. It's Jesus' introduction to his version of the law. I want to give a very, very brief outline of everything that's gone on in Matthew up to this point so you understand why we've gotten to this moment. Matthew's gospel is intentionally designed by the author 
to represent Jesus as the, um, the true Israelite, as actually reliving the story of the nation of Israel and doing everything right, getting it right where they got it wrong. So in, 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 after you have the genealogy and all of that, Matthew, uh, Jesus uh, is, 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 is threatened by Herod and his parents take him into Egypt and, and Matthew says the reason this was happened was to fulfill a prophecy from this book called Hosea that says, out of Egypt I called my son. The weird thing is if you look at the book of Hosea where this supposed prophecy is, it doesn't look like a prophecy at all. It has nothing to do with the Messiah. It has nothing seemingly to do with the future. It's a story. It's telling the story of Israel. The son is not Jesus or the Messiah. The son is the nation of Israel, and it's saying that God called his people out of slavery in Egypt. Now, you can either think Matthew is just totally taking this verse out of context and is picking and choosing, or you can think that Matthew is rereading the whole Old Testament in light of what he's experienced with Christ. And he's saying that Jesus' lived existence is redoing this. They were in Egypt, and he was sent to Egypt as a baby. The next thing that happens in the Old Testament is that Israel is freed from Egypt, and they go through the Red Sea. Paul calls this their baptism in the Red Sea. So the next thing that happened in Matthew's gospel is Jesus goes, and he is baptized by John the Baptist. Then, after the Red Sea, Israel goes into the wilderness for 40 years where they are tempted. What does Jesus do after his baptism? He goes into the wilderness for 40 days. And he's tempted actually very much the same way Israel was, tempted with questions about food and tempted with questions about will he trust God. But everywhere Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. And in the middle of that, Israel goes to a mountain, a mountain called Mount Sinai. And they are given the law. God tells them how to live. And the next part of Matthew is where we come to this morning. Jesus goes to his own mountain and he gives his own version of the law, his own account of how to live. You can think of it as a new law or as his definitive interpretation of God's old law. But the way he starts is fairly Astonishing, I think. Oh, sorry, it all got mixed up. I had these all nice, beautifully aligned, but it's sermon ruined. Let's go home. Um, here's what's crazy. I think it's crazy. If you don't, then this whole sermon is pointless. How many commands do you see? How many imperatives? An imperative is telling someone to do something. An indicative is just stating a fact or stating a truth. How many commands? After this, he goes on to talk about how his people are meant to be salt and light and city, cities on a hill. No commands there either. Jesus' definitive interpretation of the law begins with a bunch of statements about reality, phrased in terms of just facts about the way things are. It takes a very long time before he says anything about what we're meant to do. And the reason, I think, is because Jesus is suggesting that if you really want to change, if you really want to be different, if you want to be better, if you want to follow the moral law, call it whatever you want, the most important thing isn't that someone just tell you again and again, why aren't you doing this, why aren't you doing this, why aren't you doing this, do this, do this, do this, do this. You need to come in touch with moral reality, with the way the world works. Because if you come in touch with moral reality, you might actually have the motivation for why you should start to live differently. Jesus enters here into a 
centuries-long discussion about what is the truth of morality. Where does right and wrong come from, and why should we act rightly? Why should we act well? This, this conversation has been going on for centuries, and it was, it was interesting this week. There's been a bunch of reviews of this book that has come out, and, and it, I, just, I just flag it up because it says, a, a philosopher and his mission to save morality. Derek Parfit was one of the most celebrated English philosophers of the last century, and he was this, he was, this biography was just written of him, and, and it, it's, it's, people would think, how would this, this, this you know, academic who's lived all his life basically in Oxford, how could you write a whole biography about him? Sorry, I know all of you academics think your lives are very interesting. Um, but the reason is because he was so obsessed with this question, basically, about how, what is the truth of morality that he lived a wild life. He refused to boil his kettle. He used hot water and instant coffee so he could keep working at all times. The only way he worked out was on, was on a, a workout bicycle so he could read while he worked. He found the, what he thought was the perfect outfit and he wore that outfit every single day. He wore this, not, not literally the same clothes, but he wore the same outfit every day. Why? Because he was obsessed with this question of what is the truth of right and wrong. And he dedicated his every day of his existence to it. This is a huge question. And, and what Jesus does in this is not just a kind of set aside religious thing. He enters into this discussion that goes back to the Greeks and further about what is the truth of right and wrong and why should we strive to do what is right? What is real, morally speaking? And Jesus takes a side. Jesus enters into this huge debate, and there's lots of, should we do what's right because we have a duty to do so? Should we do what's right because we need to maximize the happiness of all sorts of people? There's all sorts of answers given, and one of them, we're gonna learn one big word this week, is called eudaimonism, eudaimonism, I don't know how to pronounce it, different ways. And one take on the reason you should be good the reason you should do what is right is because it will make you happy. It is the path to flourishing and to life and to joy. And the core reason then why we should do what is right isn't just because we have a duty to, but it's because it's what makes humans work. It's what makes them flourish. Now that might sound weird. Are we saying the reason we should do what is good is because it makes us happy? Well, if you believe in the Bible, Jesus seems to say a lot about blessedness. Blessedness is a way of talking about happiness. He starts his thing giving this long treatise on why you should be, pursue the good so you can be happy. But here's a way to describe uh, what this idea, this idea that the core this, of, 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 of ethics, of doing well, is about human, your own flourishing or happiness. Here's an analogy someone gave. They said, imagine that you went on a long journey, hopefully on a newer ship than one of these, and when you got to your destination, you had a dead, you, let's say you go, on a, go into an island, you had a disease that you weren't aware of. And when you got there, you, you, a bunch of people on the island got the disease and it was terrible, it was horrible, lots of people were ill and it was very sad. Let's say one person did that and they had, it was a total accident. It was a tragedy. They had no idea they were ill and all of these horrible things happened. Another person, person two, did the exact same thing except they knew they were ill. They were aware they had the disease, but they really wanted to go on holiday, and so they went anyway and say, ah, whatever happens, happens. Both cases, there's a tragedy. Let's say both cases, the exact name, same number of people were sick. But you might think only the second one was actually evil. The first one was just as tragic, 
but it was just the tragedy. The second one where he knew what he was doing was both tragic, but was also evil. It was wrong. It was, in Christian terms, sinful. But the difference isn't that one hurt more people than the other. The difference has nothing to do with the consequences on other people. So what's the difference? From a Christian perspective, the difference is the first person made a terrible mistake, and the second person harmed not just other people, but their own soul. Part of the essence of evil from a Christian perspective is not just what it does to others, it's what it does to yourself, that it unmakes you, that it hardens you, that it begins to break the way you were meant to be. The essence of wrongdoing is actually what it does to you, that it pushes you away from blessedness, from life, from happiness. Jesus is suggesting that these seemingly difficult statements of reality are the path to a life that is actually worth living. That poverty of spirit, that humility, that knowing that you can't sort things out on your own is actually the way to joy and that self-assertion, pride, overconfidence, might look good in the short term, but shipwrecks your life. That a life that is worth living will involve mourning, because it will not involve protecting yourself from all pain and loss and suffering. It will involve giving yourself to others, entering into their pain, and at time, weeping tears. And that that life is better, it's more joyful than a life which protects yourself and keeps yourself away from suffering. That meekness, gentleness, kindness, these things we might think are somehow trite or trivial are the core of what makes a life worth celebrating, what makes a life truly good. And on and on down through the list we, should, we could go that even though he's going to talk a lot about this striving to do good, a truly good life is a person that is full of mercy, that actually has expectations for others that are maybe lower for the expectations you have for yourself. All of these, Jesus thinks, are the way to a life that is worth living, the way to a life of happiness and joy. Now, there's one obvious objection to this picture, this eudaimonistic picture, which says the reason you should do good is because this is the way to joy and to happiness. And the obvious objection is, oftentimes it doesn't seem true. Oftentimes you look at people who are prideful and who protect themselves from suffering and who aren't persecuted but persecute others, who are, in other words, the opposite of everything Jesus listed, and they look wealthy, they look like they have good holidays, they look like their life is working out really well, and you look at people who are poor in spirit and who mourn and who are merciful, and their life looks very difficult, perhaps even miserable. So is Jesus right? Jesus is giving something like eudaimonism, but with a twist that separates it from most every other version given in this long conversation. There's a famous, uh, one of the things that is really interesting about this, if the left side is the kind of way of life that leads to blessedness, the right side is this rich description of, of what blessedness ultimately is. And there's a very interesting ambiguity in the tenses that are used. A few of these blessings are in the present. 
Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, first and last. But most all the rest are future. They will be comforted. They will inherit the earth. They will be filled. They will be shown mercy. They will see God. They will be called children of God. There is an ambiguity, ambiguity that Jesus seems to be saying, this way of life is worth living because the kingdom is yours. Now you can begin to experience bliss and joy now, but he also seems to be saying that the real thing you're living for is in the distance. It won't be grasped today. It's something you can only trust in by faith. One of my favorite thinkers about morality, if you've been here long, you probably could have guessed this, is Augustine. And Augustine, in his most famous work, picks up on this idea of Jesus, and he kind of mercilessly mocks the Stoics. The Stoics, maybe you've heard of the idea of the Stoics. This takes this idea of eudaimonism, that you should do the good because it makes you happy, to an extreme. They said, if that's true, if, if you should do the good because it makes you happy, then, then happiness, your own happiness, must be completely in your own control. What makes you happy is all about what you do. It's not about what happens to you. So you should be able to be perfectly happy in every situation, no matter what, because it's up to you. It's what you do. And so they said, if you're, if you're, if you're miserable, if everything's falling apart, it doesn't matter. You can still be perfect perfectly happy as long as you do the right thing. And Augustine said, that's ridiculous. He describes, he says, imagine a Stoic, and he's quite, he's kind of mean in the way he does this, mean in the kind of intellectual way. He says, imagine, imagine, imagine a Stoic who has had their entire fortune lost in some grave disaster, who has all their, they're a young man, but all of their youthful vigor has been sapped and they're bedridden. He says, imagine their friends have turned away from them. And then he gets really extreme. He says, imagine that their, their back is broken and they're curved and they have to crawl around on all fours. Is that person happy? Is that person joyful just because they do the right thing? He says, such is the pride of these men who fancy that the supreme good can be found in this life and that they can become happy by their own resources. True virtues do not profess to be able to deliver from all miseries, for true virtues tell no such lies. But they profess that by the hope of the future world, this life which is miserably involved in the many and great evils is happy and it is also safe. That key word safe is the main thing. He's saying that, that, that something about this uniquely Jesus-centered vision means that living in this way means that even though misery will still come, even though those sadness and sorrow will come and they'll be because of things beyond your control, there is still a form of happiness you can have, but even more than that, your future is secure. And the reason is because just under the surface of the Beatitudes, what is kind of wanting to jump out of every single one is that the Beatitudes are all about the person of Jesus. They only make sense is if the center of moral reality is death and resurrection. Bonhoeffer said this, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, having reached the end of the Beatitudes, we naturally ask if there is any place on this earth for the community which they describe. Clearly there is one place and only one and that is where the poorest, meekest, and most sorely tried of all men is to be found. 
on the cross at Golgotha. The only way we can truly trust that living well leads to joy and bliss and happiness is, is if this life is not the end. If after our sacrifice, after our struggle, after our mourning comes a dawn of joy and of happiness where all things are put right. And when you look at each of these beatitudes, the way in which they describe the character of Christ is amazing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The New Testament will go on to say that though he is rich, he made himself poor for our sake, that in him we might become rich. Blessed are those who mourn. Isaiah told of one who would come who would be a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief, so that those whose hearts are broken might receive his joy. Blessed are the meek. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, for I am meek and lowly. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Paul says Jesus is our righteousness. That though we are not good on our own, though we can only hunger to be right, he is the one who makes us righteous. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed is the one who met with women by wells who were shamed and with others who were about to be killed by a mob and gave them the mercy no one else would. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed is the one person who came only to give his life for others, who was not manipulative, who was not anxious, who wasn't seeking to take, but only to give. Blessed is that utter and complete purity. Blessed is the one who Paul said is our peace. And blessed is the one who is not just persecuted because of righteousness, but who goes and gives his life for those who are unrighteous so that his righteousness might become ours. The Beatitudes only work. The promises only are real. If every single thing we are asked to sacrifice, every moment we are told to take up our cross and give up something for which our heart longs is followed by resurrection, by a deeper fulfillment than we could ever imagine. Might I suggest to you that this is the reason why we struggle to be good. That we don't struggle to be good because our parents didn't raise us well that we don't struggle to be good because some religious leader hasn't yelled at us long enough or that we haven't shouted or that we haven't beaten ourselves, that every time we struggle to do what is right, we are struggling to believe that the sacrifice is worth it. In that moment, the thing we want seems like the only thing that can make us happy. We don't think we can be happy if we don't get to party just like our friends do. We don't think we can be happy if we're not just as manipulative and self-seeking as our colleagues. We don't think we can be happy if we're honest, even if it costs us. We, have a th we don't think we can be happy if we don't have sexual intimacy now. If you want to change, if you want to be morally transformed, might I suggest that it's actually a lot more helpful to spend time meditating on the right half of the Beatitudes than the left. To spend more time reflecting upon the gravity and the weight of the resurrection promises than on just what you should do.
Because we know what we should do. We struggle to believe, to trust, that it's really worth it. This is why Jesus can summarize his entire new law this way. In John's gospel, someone comes to them and says, comes to Jesus and says, what, what must we do to be doing the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. This is the core moral struggle of our lives. Do we believe the promises of God are true? Do we believe we can take up our cross today because tomorrow comes resurrection? Do we believe that the promises of joy and of tears being wiped away and of all things being made new, a promise, a bliss, and a happiness that utterly surpasses what we think we are tempted to think we cannot be happy without? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, if it is true that standing at the center of the universe is the God-man Jesus dying for us all, and yet out of that cross, out of that sacrifice, rising again, may we make that the center of our lives. May we be in awe of the gift that has been given. And may we receive a new sense of motivation for seeking to live a life of blessedness. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. We're gonna take a few moments as we come to the table to confess. And before we do that, I've said this before, I think when you realize that the reason most of us don't act well is not just because we don't know what we we are supposed to do, but because we, we don't have the motivation, when you realize that that is the, the core moral struggle, then this table becomes one of the most practical things you can do. Because when you come here, God offers to you afresh his promises. He gives you the guarantee of all of those blessings that we will see God, that we will be comforted, that the kingdom is ours. We are receiving the motivation for the moral life before us. The novelist J.R.R. Tolkien described this table this way. I love this quote. I think he gets at the practical dimension. Out of the darkness of my life, so much frustrated, I put before you the one great thing to love on earth, the blessed sacrament. There you will find romance, glory, honor, fidelity, and the true way of all your loves on earth. And more than that, death by the divine paradox, which ends life and demands the surrender of all and yet by the taste or foretaste of which alone can what you seek in earthly relationships, love, faithfulness, joy, be maintained or take on that complexion of reality of eternal endurance which every man's heart desires. Let's take a few moments to confess the ways we are tempted to not believe the promises of God, to not believe that our heart's desires will be really and truly fulfilled in God's kingdom. Let's confess together.